Good morning. Welcome to Celebration Church. Let's all stand together as our campuses join us in Appleton this morning and in the wonderful city of Stevens Point, as well as all those who watch us on television and online throughout the internet. And let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. This is our statement of faith. This is who we are and what we believe at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Good to have you with us on this wonderful Easter morning. Lent has come to an end, so you may now partake in that which you have forsaken for the last 40 days. <laughs> Some of you were getting the shakes. <laughs> so, uh, so that's good. This morning we're Celebrating now the end of it all, talking about Easter this Wednesday. Actually, we uh, had a uh, baptismal service that we should have had Wednesday, but then the big, massive blizzard turned out to be more of a burp, but uh, the big blizzard. So we had to cancel. So we're scheduled for not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday night. Is that right? I don't know. I just work here. So that's kind of the plan. <laughs> This Wednesday night, we do continue our Wednesday night Bible study. This Wednesday night, we're going to be discussing intimacy in marriage, which is the Easter morning friendly version of what I'm going to be talking about. All right? So you might want to come and check that out. It'll be a night to remember. Starts at 6.45, ends at 7.45. One hour. Come on out on Wednesday night. Speaking of the aforementioned subject, we want to give a shout out to Hannah and J.T., Van Zeeland, who brought into the world a wonderful little girl, Santa, Savannah, not Santa, Savannah Willow. Give them a hand. Praise the Lord. <laughs> you guys in Appleton. Woohoo! We like babies. All right. Easter Sunday morning. We're reading from Luke chapter 24 and verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. What are they doing? They're going to prepare Jesus' body for burial. Why didn't they do this the first time? Because it was so late in the day. Uh, Jesus died late on a Friday, and they had just enough time to get him off the cross, clean him up, and lay him in the tomb. Uh, and they didn't do their regular, normal preparations that they would do because it was the Sabbath. You couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. So they quick got him in there, put the stone there, waited for the Sabbath to pass, and then Sunday morning now, they're coming with these spices. It says they found the stone rolled away from the tomb when they got there, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living? Among the dead, he is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, 
be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. This morning, I want to talk to you very briefly about hope. What does it mean to have hope? Because on Easter morning, we celebrate hope. This week, I was looking through some messages online, and I saw a blog written by a pastor from California by the name of Ray Johnston writing about what happens when people lose hope. He said, when spouses lose hope, they give up on their marriage. When parents lose hope, they give up on their teens. Leaders can give up on their people, or in today's current climate, people are giving up on their leaders. I threw that one in. Without hope, healthy emotions like contentment and peace are replaced with toxic emotions, confusion, shame, worry, disappointment. In short, it's impossible to be spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, or healthily in your relationships without hope. Hope is the opposite of discouragement. When there's no hope, discouragement comes in. He writes, Howard Hendricks gave this gripping definition of the word discouragement. He said, discouragement is the antiseptic the devil uses on a person just before he reaches in and carves out your heart. Great, great description there. When people lose hope, they lose their ability to dream for the future. Despair replaces joy. Fear replaces faith. Anxiety replaces prayer. I thought it was a great way of saying that. You know, prayer is supposed to be a time when you come to God and you confidently, joyfully bring to him your request. But when you're freaking out and you're losing hope, you panic. And people walking back and forth go, oh God, oh God, oh God. That's not really prayer. That's known as freaking out, which you got to do what you got to do. But at some point you want to get back to prayer and that's what happens. Anxiety starts to replace true prayer Insecurity will replace confidence, and tomorrow's dreams are now replaced by a continuing stream of nightmares. Without hope, you cannot dream of a future. Without hope, no one can accomplish anything. It's that hope, that dream, that possibility that lies before people, that drives them to do what many would have told them was the impossible to do. Without hope, you would have had no Bill Gates or Microsoft and the home computers. You wouldn't have Steve Jobs and Apple computers. Without hope, you don't have Aaron Rodgers throwing a ball into the stratosphere in Detroit. (laughs) On the final play of the game, praise be to God. (laughs) Without hope, Nelson Mandela would not have been able to change the history of his entire nation. Without hope, you remove all the medical and scientific discoveries and advancements of mankind. All that is driven by hope. Hope we can find a cure. Hope we can make things better. There's got to be a better way. Hope is what drives us forward. Hope is what causes us to dream. Hope is what makes us believe tomorrow can and will be better than today. Hope is essential for a successful life. With hope, courage replaces fear and strength chases away powerlessness. Hope is what propels us forward, gives us a reason to dream, to work, to sacrifice, and to believe. You see, hope is the airspeed that keeps you flying. Now, many of you know I'm a pilot. I've flown planes for some 25 plus years, and uh, 
Uh, one of the first things they do when they're teaching you to fly is they'll take you up, you know, a couple of thousand feet in the air and tell you to slow the plane down. And they do that by pulling the power all the way off. All of a sudden, and he says, now just hold it, hold it. And the plane keeps slowing down. It keeps slowing down. And it hits that point where the wings lose lift. See, it's just the law of physics that if a plane goes a certain speed, it will fly. It will fly every time, all the time. Even though you cannot see it, it's as powerful as any law of physics that you'll see in our world today. That's why you can hop on a plane and short of an engine failure, that thing is going to fly. Always fly. People who get nervous with flying don't understand because they can't see. They don't know what's going on. Every time. And each plane has its own number it has to hit. Once it hits that number, it begins to fly. So they teach you what happens when you get below that number. And they take you up and they pull back the power and you hold it and you hold it. The thing gets slower and slower and on the verge of the stall when it starts to fall out of the sky, the plane starts to shudder and you feel it. <laughs> and all of a sudden, boom, it happens. And the nose points down and now you're headed straight for the ground. Of course, what happens then? You speed up and you get lift again and you pull out of it. If you're weak in the stomach, this is not a hobby for you. <laughs> I'm just telling you. But this is what they do. And they do it to us over and over and over again to drill into us, to get us to memorize the muscle memory, the sounds, the feel of what happens when a plane starts to stall. Why? So you can avoid it. Now, generally speaking, stall is not that big a deal as long as you have altitude. People get nervous when planes get high. I promise you, when you're flying, altitude is your friend. <laughs> Gives you lots of time to find alternative situations, answers to problems. And virtually all fatal accidents happen when the plane stalls very close to the ground because it doesn't have the time to speed up and recover. Hope is the airspeed that keeps us flying. Without hope, you will stall out. Without hope, you have what is known as hopelessness. And it can be emotionally and mentally and spiritually draining. But even more than that, it will affect you physically, literally physically. Studies have shown that when people get to a place of hopelessness, their body starts to shut down. You start having serious physical problems. You are not designed or created to be in a state of hopelessness. Without hope, people experience aches and pains. Chronic fatigue sets in, insomnia, heart attacks, coronary artery disease, Parkinson's disease, autoimmune diseases such as multiple sclerosis or lupus. There's even evidence that hopelessness can cause strokes, cancer, diabetes, kidney disease, and arthritis. The list goes on and on. When you get to a place of hopelessness, your body starts to shut down. The human experience must live in a state of hope. Hope brings life. Without hope, there is sickness and death. Now, when we say we believe in the God of the Bible, if you believe in the God of the Bible, you must alternately acknowledge the existence of Satan and of evil. Now, sometimes people wonder, why do bad things happen? This morning, I'm going to tell you why bad things happen. This alone was worth the hassle of coming to see me this morning. 
I'm going to tell you why bad things happen. Now, usually people are asking the wrong question. They ask, why does God let bad things happen? Oh, no, no, my dear. You're asking the wrong question. Jesus taught us very clearly that Satan and evil has come into the world to rob, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. When something is full of robbing, killing, and destroying, is that God? It is not. That is Satan. When things are full of life and blessings and success, this, these are gifts that come from God. So it's not a question as why does God let bad things happen? God doesn't make bad things happen. Satan, evil, makes bad things happen. But there isn't a why to it. Why does he do it? Well, Satan brings bad things into people's lives, not just to make them suffer, although I'm sure he's twisted enough that there's a certain sick degree of enjoyment he gets out of, but that's not his motivation. The reason, the purpose to bring bad things into your life or anybody else's life is to get you to the point of hopelessness, where you will lose hope. Because when a people loses hope, when an individual loses hope, they start to die. And destruction starts pouring into their lives. No army has ever been successful in defeating their opponent without first creating a sense that all is lost, that there is hopelessness on the other side. As long as any army thinks there's a chance, there's a chance we will prevail, they will continue to fight on. In any battle, and I love reading history, and I you know, read these big books about battles and stuff. I just finished one that thick, and I went out and bought one that thick. I'm only that far in. But anyway, it's a, it's a great book. I'll tell you all about it when I get done. But, uh, and it's amazing as you look at history. No battle has ever, no war has ever gotten to the place where the other side quits, where they surrender, until they get to this place that all is lost. Now, I think, now this is my own personal opinion. If you don't like it, get in line. All right? <laughs> don't email me. I don't care about what you think about my stupid thinking. But I think the way we're trying to fight wars today is crazy. Because we try to defeat an enemy while at the same time making sure no one feels hopeless. I was watching a documentary of battles in Afghanistan. And these soldiers, and I got to tell you, an American soldier is the brightest, sharpest, most highly trained, skillful, best equipped fighting human being the world has ever seen. An American soldier is a fearful thing to see on a battlefield. We have incredible men and women. But to quote a certain eccentric that rhymes with hump. <laughs> I'm not mentioning any names. Our leaders are really stupid. Because we have leaders today, and they're showing this in this documentary. I'm watching this documentary. It is stunning. Our guys are fighting these Taliban young men and older men. I mean, there's whatever, all kinds of ages. Fighting to the death, fighting back and forth. And then they go into the villages, and they know, our leaders know that the village leaders are members of the Taliban. And they're sitting with them, 
and they're talking with them and they're giving them money and building roads and building schools and giving them food. And I'm thinking, what idiot thought this up? It used to be, I think it still is technically a crime in military to give aid and comfort to the enemy. Today we fight battles and we give aid and comfort to the enemy at the same time. I'm not saying we should go in and carpet bomb civilians. I'm not saying anything. They don't say I'm saying things I'm not saying. What I'm saying is what we're doing is crazy. You can't keep people. Can you imagine if during World War II, we're fighting the Germans on the front line, and at the same time, we're airlifting in food and supplies and encouragement to the German people? That's what they're doing today. Dumb. Anyway. Moving on. Why Satan attacks people is to get you to the place where you lose hope. Our political leaders may not know it today, but Satan still knows it. That the key to victory is for you to lose hope. To you to believe that in your situation, all hope is lost. That it's gone too far. It's way too late. You know, I have a theory about why some people seem to experience, Christians seem to experience more trouble than other Christians. It's a theory. A theory basically is a wild, crazy idea that you can't prove. I got lots of those. But my theory is this. Why do some people who believe in God always have so much trouble and others seem to hardly run into any? I mean, nobody gets out of this without some. But some really, my theory is this. The people who always have trouble are people who deep inside Satan can look and see that there's a chance that you will get to a place of hopelessness. And when he knows that, when he smells that fear in you, he will pound you, he will attack you, he will make everything in your life as miserable as possible. Pastor, why is it so terrible? Why is it terrible? I don't know what's so terrible. Chances are there's a piece of you that says, there's a white flag, you're getting ready to raise it. And he keeps attacking. When you know the enemy's on the edge, what do you do? You don't back off. You press on the accelerator. You push forward. You attack harder. Then you got people who seem to hardly have any problems. Everybody's got some problems. Say, so why is that? It's not fair. I'm telling you. I think it's those people. They never give up hope. Satan beats the snot of them. They don't quit. And he says, I'm going to leave these guys alone. Why waste my time? He'd rather pick on you. Ready to give up hope hopelessness. If you've got a seed of hopelessness sitting in you, you're in a bad place. You're putting a spiritual target on your chest. You're letting the devil stick a note on the back of your shirt that says, kick me. Why? Because you reek of the potential of hopelessness. Snap out of it. You get to the place where you decide no matter what, I will never lose my faith in God. This is when you start to be successful in your life. If there's one thing that we celebrate on this glorious Easter morning, it is hope. Because Easter says it's never too late. You have to remember, we just reflected on this on Good Friday. We had fabulous Good Friday services at all our campuses. But where we just reflected on that day that Jesus was crucified and died for the sins of mankind. The disciples were devastated. Now, in all fairness, Jesus had told them what was going to happen. In fact, in our text this morning, the angel says, don't you remember that he said this was going to happen? But in all fairness to the disciples, they didn't know what he was talking about. They didn't know what he was talking about half the time. 
They got to the point, they didn't know. The Bible says they got to the point, they were afraid to even ask him any questions. You ask him what he said, I ain't asking him nothing, man. I don't know what he's talking about. But he'd say, he didn't you know if it was a parable or if it was reality. I mean, he, they, they just got to the point, we're just going to follow him. I don't know what he's talking about. So when he tells them that, he, he's thinking he's talking. Who knows what he's talking about? He, they, they didn't connect it. And here they are, and he gets arrested. And even while he's still arrested, there's a glorious hope. When he's nailed to that cross, there was still hope. For all they knew, Jesus was going to come off that cross and kick some serious Roman butt. But when he breathed his last, and he slumped over, they were devastated. What has just happened? How can that happen? Everything we put our trust in is gone. All these years we've sacrificed all this stuff and for what? He's dead. How can he be dead? They all huddled together. Now, I think the main reason they didn't just scatter to the winds, quite frankly, is because it was the Sabbath. Jews were very strict about the Sabbath. Remember, that's why they didn't even prepare the body all the way. As soon as the Sabbath, they just sat there. They sat in the room because you can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. Filled with dread, confusion, and despair. Clearly, it's over. But on that Sunday morning, they learned a powerful lesson. It's never over. It's never too late. Even in the face of death itself, when Jesus came walking out of that tomb, wow, this taught them that it is never too late. It is never. These men were so devout in their ministry as they went throughout the world. One minute, they're crying or giving up. Peter's denying them. All of a sudden, now, they're changing the world. What made the difference? They learned it's never over. No matter what they do to us, no matter what they say to us, we always win. Nothing is impossible to God. It's never too late. These were seriously devout men. These weren't casual believers. You know, they didn't just come to church twice a year whether they needed it or not. <laughs> just say. These guys were transformed because they learned when they sat and Jesus appeared before them and started talking to them. And he told Thomas, put your hands fingers in my hands and my side. I mean, can you imagine how their minds were blown? They knew nothing was impossible. Now, you think they would have learned this earlier because Jesus gave many examples of how it's never too late. One time, a synagogue ruler by the name of Jairus comes, Jairus, whatever his name is, comes to uh, Jesus and he's desperate. His daughter is dying. Now, any man here, any father who has a little girl can only begin to, you know exactly how you feel if your little girl was on the verge of death. I mean, there's people today, their loved ones get sick, they'll fly anywhere in the world trying to find a cure, trying to find, I mean, they are desperate. They'll spare no expense. They'll do whatever is possible. Wherever there's, quite frankly, hope, they will go there. He hears of this man who prays for sick people and they get well. Well, he beat, beats a line straight to Jesus. He wants to go find this Jesus. He finds Jesus. He says, my little girl is dying. Would you please 
please come pray for her. And Jesus said, yes, I'll come. This guy, man, oh, he is so grateful. He's so excited. And they're walking to his home. When they get close to his home, the people came from the house and they said, it's too late. She's dead. Now, the Bible doesn't say, there's a lot of detail the Bible doesn't give us, but you have to think that at that moment, that man's knees gave out as he plummeted to the ground in tears. Can you imagine how you would feel if you heard the word, your little girl is dead? And in the midst of grief and sorrow and everybody's sorrowful and they're just, and all the disciples with Jesus think, oh man, I wish we got here sooner. Too late now. Jesus said, hey, she's not dead. She's sleeping. Well, the Bible says they ridiculed and mocked him. And I'm sure in an angry manner. What do you mean she's sleeping? She's dead. We know dead. And I promise you, these people, a lot of us have never seen a dead person or been around much of a dead person. You see him you know, in a funeral for a minute and walk away. But I'm, these people were very intimately acquainted with death. People routinely died of things today that we don't think twice of. Take a few pills, it's nothing. Fevers, all kinds of things would take people's lives. They knew death. A lot of lifespans were very short. They knew what it was like when someone had died. I'm sure they were angry, insulted. What do you mean she's not dead? She's sleeping. We know what dead is. They're mocking him. They're yelling at him. So the disciples are going, oh man, this is bad. This, This is bad. Jesus says, take me to the little girl. He gets in there and this little girl's lying lifeless on her mat. And the Bible says, Jesus came over the girl and said, little girl, get up. And the Bible says, to the shock and amazement of everyone there, suddenly the little girl goes and wakes up and gets up. And I mean, everybody is freaking. I mean, Wow. Now, you've got to assume some people thought, oh, maybe she really was sleeping. <laughs> right? I mean, it wasn't she like she was dead for days? It's a few minutes, maybe. You know, I've given this analogy a lot of times. If one of our pastors, I always pick on Pastor Lathan. <laughs> if Pastor Lathan falls over dead in the service, and you doctors and nurses come on, you're shaking, he's dead, man. Oh, man, everybody's freaking out. The emergency people come, we're all praying. All of a sudden, he sits up. The vast majority would have thought, Oh, he wasn't dead. Now, he probably had gas or something, you know. <laughs> you know that's what you think. Everyone, and you know, I'd be with you. I think, oh, I guess he's feeling okay. I don't know. What's he could drop dead. I mean, stone dead, and God could bring him back to life. Most of you hit him, and you're believers. Most of you would go, no, nah, he probably wasn't dead. <laughs> you know, that's what you think. Even if he was dead. Well, I'm sure a lot of them, well, she, you know, she, well, I, guess, well, I guess she wasn't dead. Who knows what they thought? All we know is this father and this family is filled with joy. One thing's for sure, she's not sick anymore. She's well. At least on that level, a miracle has taken place. You think the disciples would have learned, man, it's never too late. Not with Jesus. Later on, we read about Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. And his sisters, Mary and Martha, are all friends of the family. You know, you have people, you have friends, and you got friends. He was in, they were in the friends category. They came and said, man, Lazarus is really sick. And Jesus intentionally delays going to see him. 
He's waiting for him to die. He intentionally lets him die. Man, if I'm sick, come see me, man. Don't wait for me to die. No. So he gets there. Lazarus has been dead for three, four days. When he shows up, the girls are furious. They're crying. Where were you? Where if you'd have been here? If you'd have been here, he'd, he'd still be alive. You could have healed him. I'm sure the disciples are feeling bad. They say, man, I don't, I don't know. He, he didn't go. He just waited. He knew he was sick. And, well, it's late now. So one thing for a little girl to fall, you know, who knows what her deal was, but this guy's he's dead for days. And it's a big emotional moment, and everybody's upset, and everybody's crying. And it's the only place where we read where Jesus cried. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. It says, Jesus wept. Why would he cry? Man, just the emotion. Everybody's upset and crying. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where everybody's crying. Everybody's upset. Pretty soon you're crying. Why are you crying? I don't know, man. Everybody's crying. I'm crying. <laughs> then Jesus said, where did you put him? He's in the tomb. Take me there. They take him to the tomb. He said, now roll back the stone. He said, oh, Lord. Oh. <laughs> he has been mellowing for days. It's going to smell bad, they said. He said, roll away the stone. They roll this way. So his disciples had to be thinking, what in the world? Is he, is he going to go in and look at it? What is this? Because I'm pretty sure they were pretty doggone sure it's too late. And Jesus yells into the tomb, Lazarus, come out of there. And they're all staring at the door. Pretty soon Lazarus comes hopping out. <laughs> Man, I'd have died. I go to your funeral, you pop up and start talking to people. Someone's going to raise me from the dead. Freak me out. You would think at this point, hey, well, it's never too late. But it's different because Jesus was still there. Now, 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 now it's too late. He is gone. He is dead. But Easter morning teaches them it's never too late. It's never over. All things are possible with God. This Easter morning, if you feel discouraged this morning, you feel somehow that God has forgotten about you, that your situation is so bad, so far gone, it's too late for your life. I got good news for you. It's never too late. Easter teaches us it's never too late. Nothing is impossible to God. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know, God could never love me. He could never forgive me. I've done some really bad things. I've, I've gone too far. It's too late for me. I've got really good news for you this morning. It's never too late because nothing is impossible with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message of Easter this morning that when Jesus came out of that tomb forever to conquer death, it shows us that nothing is Nothing is impossible. Lord, I'm sure there's people this morning who are here, they're having a really hard time in life. They're being attacked from all sides because Satan is trying to get them to a place where they surrender, where they feel all is lost, where they get to a state of permanent hopelessness. Lord, I pray that you would speak words of life by your spirit into their hearts and show them it's never over. 
it's never too far gone. It's never too late. And for anyone here this morning who has never truly experienced the wonderful, glorious knowledge of knowing you, open their hearts. Help them to see the glorious miracle of this day, this day that we learn nothing is impossible with God. Nothing ever goes too far because it's never too late. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless all of you. Have a great Easter.